0: Welcome to the Expository Word Podcast, featuring classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Today, Kimber continues teaching through the book of Samuel, and our hope is that you will be challenged and encouraged by listening in. Let's turn now to Kimber. One of the exciting things about expository teaching, and we've been 26 weeks now in the book of 1 Samuel on Sunday mornings and doing overflow studies on Sunday nights, is one of the neat things particularly about going through the life of David as you come up across the background of so many of the psalms while they were written. For instance, the story goes, from 1 Samuel chapter 19, in this morning, just by quick way of review, the story goes that it's about God's deliverance of David. And in 1 Samuel 19, there are four episodes. Now, not to just totally bore you, but I want you to see that in 1 Samuel 18, the message also is two keynotes laid side by side like two railroad tracks, and the first one is that God's favor is upon David. This is chapter 18 now, before we said this was last Sunday. And the second one is Saul's malice. So all through chapter 18, you've got God's favor and Saul's malice running side by side. And God's favor is greater than, God, than Saul's malice. And we saw many, many things about you cannot thwart God's purpose for your life. God's favor is greater than even the king's hatred. And you can have a tremendous encouragement that when God is for you, who can be against you? And this is something that is... Um, of extreme importance to see in the scriptures. Then we saw this week that God's deliverance of David, he delivers him through Jonathan's friendship and appeal, through David's own quickness and ability to elude another spear throw, and through Michael's love and cover-up, and through supernatural protection. Now, I want you to particularly note that we are talking now uh, about past, present, and future aspects of salvation. And when we talk about that, we're talking about salvation, being saved and will be saved, the three aspects of it. This is the verse that Rick read tonight, that you are saved by grace through faith, and as once and for all, when you come to Christ Jesus and believe upon him as a sinner, he saves you. But please listen to me, friends. What so many Christians do not talk about is the continuing being saved of 1 Corinthians, or being sanctified of 1 Peter, or being glorified of 2 Corinthians 3. And that is the continuing saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ in our lives of his people. Saving you from what? Well, this is being saved from the penalty of sin and becoming one of God's children. This is being saved from the power of sin, and this is the ultimate salvation that will be forever. And so, it is in this area where we see God delivering us and, and sanctifying us and setting us apart for His work in a greater and better way uh, at, at all times. Now, I say that to you because it's during this section of, of Scripture that we see right here. It is. It is during. It is during. after David ducks the spear, he runs home to his home that was in the wall, most likely. And Michael, his wife, who is very suspect as to whether or not she really knew the Lord, Michael, his wife, says to him, you've got to get out of here tonight. I know my father. He's going to kill you. You've got to get out of here. To which he says, all right. And before she lets him out the window on the side of the outskirts of town, the outside of the wall, remember the the houses were built between the walls. Before she lets him out going that side, most likely... He sits down and says, and I don't mean to sound joking about this matter, but he says, wait a minute, and he had some quiet devotions first in which he penned the 59th Psalm. So it was during this time. He's just had a spear thrown at him. He's already been—he's already known that there was a conspiracy that Jonathan told him about that Saul had told the cabinet members, I want David dead. He already had had two spears thrown at him in chapter 18. He'd already known of Saul's, probably in thinking back on it from a Monday morning quarterback's perspective, he saw there was a whole lot of jealousy from Saul towards him. And now imagine a young man in his 20 years old having the king of Israel and all of the men after you to kill you. And he's running at night, but just before he leaves, he pens the 59th Psalm. Now there's several things I want you to notice about the 59th Psalm if you would, if you would, if you, you should already be there. And that is, um, several things I want you to notice. First off, look at the caption at the beginning. It says, for the director of music. Now, the director of music means that it was given by David to be used in temple worship. We heard for the first time this fall our choir sing. I just loved it. And it was, by the way, those choir members, I'm telling you, every Sunday there's an automatic infusion of, of, uh, strength into my faith I, I always walk in here one time and just look at you and to see 50 or 60 people here practicing to sing in the choir it is so incredibly encouraging to me and and i love it and it, part of it is it's they were doing it in israel the, the choir director the music director specifically put this song to use in singing at the temple and that's something i want you to notice And I want to tell you that no doubt our Lord Jesus Christ, as his custom was, went into worship. No doubt the Lord Jesus Christ heard many different choir numbers of the 59th Psalm put to music, which is something that ought to make us uh, really contemplate this in a different way. And it also was used specifically during, we know it as the Easter cantata, although we don't have an Easter cantata, we have a Mother's Day cantata usually, but it was used specifically during the spring worship festivities, especially around the time of the Passover. Now something else that you'll notice at the beginning, it says to the tune of "Do Not Destroy." We don't know that tune, but um, it was something no doubt uh, well known. And and the, the, just like we, we look in our hymn books, and it says to the tune of "Amazing Grace." And some churches they sing every song to the tune of "Amazing Grace." You know, and and I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying we we, we know that. And so that was the tune, and we don't know exactly how that tune goes now, but it, it sounds pretty um, hardcore. "Do Not Destroy" it sounds like the cover of a rock album or something, which I'm sure that it wasn't. But notice this: it's of David. And it says a miktam. Now, something I want you to see about this, a miktam. A miktam is very interesting because most scholars say we don't know what that means. But I can tell you this, that a miktam is found in six of the Psalms. There are six miktams. They're all of David, and they are the 16th, the 56th, the 57th, the 58th, the 59th, and the 60th. And of those Psalms, those miktams, um, it is possibly means to be engraven in the mind and in the heart, to be forever in the memory. And this is, in other words, it's a psalm that you're supposed to always have with you. It's the kind of psalm that should be to you like amazing grace is to the saints in this age, in which we stand up and we sing amazing grace and we have no trouble knowing the words. It's a psalm that you should know the words to in, in, in the time of Israel's worship, and they should be very familiar. Now, of those miktams, I will tell you this. All six of miktams, you see right there what it says, all six of them, deal with insecurity. Now, when I say that, I don't mean psychologically the way the word is used now. I mean, all six of the miktams, the 16th, the 56th through the 60th, were written not as a confession of sin, not as a confession of of woe, but a sense of, I'm in trouble, I need your help. They're all, in other words, psalms of deliverance, psalms of asking God for salvation. Now, um, there are also, uh, a scholar says, that these 16th, fifty-six through sixty, the miktams were probably originally silent. In other words, these were psalms that were not sung by an individual but were done silently, especially the first time they were written. And I want you to picture David kneeling by his bed with Michael looking out the window, running back to him and says, they're going to get you. You've got to get out of here tonight. And think of the fear in a young man's heart when he's already had a spear having been thrown at him. And it would be something that that would be If you put yourself in the situation, it is certainly something that uh, could be a a fearful situation. Now, um, quickly, something else is this. We could ask ourselves this question. How does a godly man handle a difficult situation? A desperate situation? How does a man after the heart of God a man who's been anointed by God and set aside for the ministry when suddenly his life is in danger and just stop and think about it. We can all say, oh, Bible characters. They didn't have any trouble with that. They knew there were Bible characters. David didn't struggle. Oh no, just like you and I, when you'd be thrown into a very precarious, very difficult situation, how would you handle it? Well, my friends, I think that we are going to, we are going to learn a lot, uh, particularly about, about how to handle a trial like that. And, um, let's, let's see what we can learn. Uh, asking ourselves this question from Psalm 59. How does a godly man or a godly person handle a difficult and desperate situation? And I want you to know something. He prays. Now, before we go on, I've just got to give you this testimony quickly. Just again this week, you talk about continually being saved. We are saved once and for all when we come to Christ, but there's continual deliverances from trouble, from trial, from dominating sin, from difficulties, from the devil's attack, from all those things where there's the continuing saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to continually appreciate it and ought to be looking for it. One of the things that grieves my heart is I see Christians that have been Christians 15, 20, and 25 years, and they're sort of, you know, yeah, I've got my orthodoxy down, and they have lost the wonder of the saving work of Jesus Christ on a continual basis in our lives. And may that never be. And may it be that God blesses this congregation, both as corporately and individually, with troubles that we have to just cry out. Because I'll tell you, I've even heard, see this answer, he prays? I've even heard that mocked by Christians today. I heard people say, oh, don't tell me, Pastor Goffman, if I'm in trouble, what am I supposed to do? Pray? You can tell me pray and memorize a verse? As if praying and memorizing a verse has no change. James says, if you are in trouble, pray. If you're in trouble, pray. The psalmist says, trust them at all times pour out your hearts before him. Recently, it, it just happened to me again, and it was, it, it was here at work, and it just to give you a, 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 an illustration, it just happened, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of this week, a heaviness started coming over me as I uh, was going out through my day, and it was the kind of heaviness that, that as, I, as I mentioned in the past, last, a few Sundays ago, the difference between Satan's temptation and God's trial and the conviction of the Holy Spirit is Satan will make your whole life seem like it's yuck, where the Holy Spirit will pick out one area and convict you. Well, this was just an area where my whole life, there was just that hopelessness, that despairing started coming over me. And as I was studying for this message, I've got to tell you, the thought came to me, you know I need to go pray. And I said, yes, but I, I've got to get some more study done. And so I was pounding out the books, and another hour went by, you've got to go pray. Ah, I know, but I've got... And finally, the, it, my thinking was getting warped, and I was starting to get so discouraged, and here I was studying God's Word. I came, as I often do, into this auditorium and walking, especially with this new edition. You can shut those doors and be assured of privacy. Back in that back, and I was walking back and forth praying. And I want you to know that for about the first 15 or 20 minutes, there was a coldness in my heart towards God, that I did not seem to break through, and suddenly I was just crying out, out of the depths, oh Lord, I cry, please, I don't know what this is, but I know that I have a tendency to go down, down, down when I get discouraged. I don't want you to, please, I plead with you to help me. And I'll tell you there was a breakthrough. And I can tell you that that discouraging time went away. And I want you to know that this is the type of norm for the Christian life. And what do we normally do? When we get in trouble, we don't pray, we call a friend, we do something else. It's not that those things are wrong. But can I tell you, one of the reasons for trials and troubles and difficulties in our life is to humble us and to drive us to prayer. And, and those are one of the reasons, as Whitfield said, O oh, trial, my blessed friend, my my companion that I need, come to me and drive me into the arms of my Savior. Now, knowing that, I say, here's what David did. He prayed. Now, let's think of what did he pray that night? What would be on your mind? How did David go about this? Let's look carefully. The first part will be the first two verses and I want to tell you one thing. When you're in desperate straits, get to the point. Now look at look what he does. Look at verses 1 and 2. Deliver me from my... By the way, this is a practical outline. This is not necessarily a, a, a great literary outline here. This is a very practical outline. Okay, Get to the point. Notice what he says. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from evildoers. And save me from bloodthirsty men. There's the first two verses. He gets to the point. When in desperate times, listen to me friends, here's a lesson from Psalm 59 and from this story we're studying. Get to the point. David does it. It's good to know there's a biblical precedent for getting to the point when you're in desperate straits. Now the reason I will tell you that's so good to know is because Satan has discouraged many, many Christians by saying things like this. Now, wait a minute. Before you go to prayer right now, you remember you've got to say, as you've heard, our Father which art in heaven, and you've got to go through the acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplications, and you've got to make sure you... And so some Christians go, oh, I'm too discouraged. I can't really get through that." Let me tell you something. When you're in desperate straits, forget about going through the acts formula or some other formula. Get to the point. Notice what he says. Deliver me. Look at verse 1b. Protect me. Look at verse or 2a. Deliver me. And look at this, 2b. Save me. Four times he uses three different words. The same word for deliver, but also protect me. And and, and the word protect, you know what it means? It says, Lord, I'm in big trouble. Put me up in a secret place on a high shelf where no one can get to me. Please do that. So get to the point. Pour out your heart before God. Second thing I want you to see is describe your situation. You want your faith to be built when you are in trouble and the the trials of life are coming around you and you're in trouble and the enemy is after you? Look at verses 3 and 4. He describes the situation to the Lord. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, O Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Now, by the way, you stop and think of those verses in light of what we've been studying in 1 Samuel, and you'll realize he had done no wrong. He was just out there playing the harp. He describes the situation. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. Now I will tell you, friends, you see this in the book of Amos, and I believe it's the 7th chapter. You see it all throughout the Psalms. You see it even in, in the Apostles' prayer. Can I tell you one thing that will build your faith when you're in desperate trouble and pray, is to get to the point but also describe your situation to the Lord? And I'll tell you, there is something that refreshes you when you go before God and say, Lord, this is the way I feel. Oh God, I can only talk to you like this because you know my past, you know my present, you know my future, you know all about me, you know the motivations of my heart. Please, here's what's happened. This person said that, and this is so discouraged, and I just feel like giving up because of this lord please help me can i tell you this kind of pleading to god and 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 praying to him is very helpful notice what he says 3a those out there lord they're strong and they're mighty 3b i'm innocent 3c notice 4a the same thing and 4b wake up lord are you listening and i may i say to you also something that will inspire your faith and say are you listening to me i can't just have a brass time here you see, we have become so smug that we can just go through some kind of formalistic prayer and it means nothing. Something that the Puritan said is pray until you pray. And one of the things we need to do as believers is to seek heaven until we have broken through and sincerely gotten a word from God to help our situation. The third thing I want you to see is be honest. Very much tying into what we said, but look at verse 5. He makes this comment in the 59th Psalm, O Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, Rouse yourself to punish the nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. Now, um, possibly, possibly, I don't know, but possibly part of this psalm was written after David became king. A verse like this would make us think so. So some of this might have been written that night. He may have gone back and later, as a poet can do, added some verses. And possibly, if you'll notice verse 5, he's now talking about the nations and showing no mercies, and it seems to have enlarged bigger than just the situation that he was in. And with that being the case, I, I, I want you to know that honesty is something that is very real. And what he says is this, Lord, take care of my enemies. Now, many, many Christians misunderstand imprecatory prayer. They feel like, oh no, we're supposed to turn the other cheek and you would never pray for God to do something to your enemies. But I want you to see something that, again, he says by Calvin Beisner, he is quoting, there are three limits on the use of imprecatory prayer. First, the curses must be firmly rooted in God's standard. You're going to see several more curses in this chapter. But before you go around starting cursing somebody, and I've got it in my notes here. Be careful, Kim, as you explain this. Because we're not saying, oh, go around and just start cursing everybody. You know, like, I can just see it's all in here. Ha <laughs> ha, I'm going to go get them, you know. right, I'm taking care of you tomorrow in my devotions, buddy. I'll see you then. You know, I, I don't mean that. But I do mean this. The curses must be firmly rooted in God's standards of righteousness and judgment, not in our own petty opinions or hurt pride. By the way, you cannot believe, how many are there rich? How many imprecatory psalms are there? Huge amount, okay? Now watch this. Second, the imprecations must be offered only for God's glory and not for our own. You see, David knew he was anointed king. David knew that he was supposed to lead Israel. He knew that Saul had been rejected. And it's with that type of understanding where you're ultimately praying this... Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when people have set themselves against doing God's will, then it would be appropriate to make such a prayer. Third, cursing prayer must be offered only in the utmost personal humility and after merciless self-examination for it amounts to pronouncing God's judgment. And so, again, I would say that may help us and we've got to be very careful, but I will tell you this. This type of imprecatory prayer is something that can resolve a lot of the deep-felt injustices that are in your heart. I will make that comment to you in in helping us with this situation. Um, uh, uh, To continue to work through this psalm, you get to the point, you describe your situation, you're being honest, and then notice this, I already went through that, be careful, but pray against your enemies. He adds more. Look at verses 6 and 7. He is referring to these soldiers that are outside the door that Michael keeps telling them about. He says, They return at evening, snarling like dogs, Prowling about the city. By the way, a Mideastern dog was considered just the sluttiest of all animals. Nobody would want one for a pet. A Mideastern dog was just the... the, And he says, they're snarling. There they are out there at evening. And they prowl about the city. There they are walking all around waiting for me. They're going to get me in the morning. Remember what Michael had said? They're going to get you in the morning. See what they spew from their mouths. He may have even been able to overhear them. Remember, there weren't windows and air conditioning and double lock pane windows. And he may have been able to hear them. He could hear them talking. Yeah, well, when are we going to get them? All Saul said not to get them until morning. They may have actually been able to hear this outside their windows. Not the window he went out. He went out the window probably going out the other side. But they could hear that. See what they spew from their mouths. They spew out words from their lips. And they say, who can hear us? They're out there planning against me. They're out there going to destroy me. And he makes this plan. Lord, listen to them. And this group of loyal soldiers to Saul, probably many of them jealous of David because of the great success. And here he was, a young man, remember? He was a captain or a general, way up high in the army, and probably many of them were jealous and they couldn't get wait to get rid of him. And he's he's honestly beseeching the Lord as he prays against them. enemy, he Lord, here's the situation. Look what they're doing. There's no kindness to them. Which leads us on the next one, and this is crucial, friends. Watch. Focus on God more than on your enemy. Look what he says in verses 8 through 10. He says, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all those nations. Oh, my strength, I watch for you. You, oh God, are my fortress, my loving God. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. Now, several things he mentions here. He focuses in verse 8 on God's sovereignty. In verse 9, he worships God. In verse 10, he says, I know you'll enable me to win. Something else I want you to notice through this whole passage. In verse 1, he refers to God as God. In verse 3, as Lord. In verse 5, as Lord God Almighty. Again in verse 5, to the God of Israel. In verse 9, my strength. Verse 10, my loving God. Verse 13, the God who rules. And verse 16, my fortress. He says fortress three times there. And I know you probably didn't catch all those, what I just said. But I want you to know that over and over, he is expressing the different names of God as he calls out to him. There's something else... I, I think that is um, of importance is especially what he says in verse 9, or verse 10, excuse me, he says, My loving God, the God who will go before me. And notice, God, rather than the enemy, uh, fills the foreground before David's eyes. Now this is so interesting because another one of the imprecatory prayers is the 16th Psalm. And in the 16th Psalm, it says the very same thing in verse 11, about God will be before me, I have set the Lord always before me. And the point is, when you are insecure and you are in some kind of desperate straits, one of the things that must fill your mind is not just your situation. What must fill your mind is the God of heaven whose promises are true for your life. And that is something that we make the biggest mistake because without this point, that's why the scriptures are so wonderful, friends, without that point, right there, you could just get yourself all worked up as you're praying over your situation again. So as you go through this situation, you're filling your mind that God's promises are greater than what my enemy may say. Something else I want you to see is be consumed with the big picture. Boy, here is a rebuke. Look at this, verses 11 through 13. He says, But do not kill them, O Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, make them wander about and bring them down for the sins of their mouth, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride, for the curses and lies they utter. There's several of these points already being wrapped up in this one, but particularly notice, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. Very interesting. The phrase, then it will be known to the ends of the earth, is very closely, in fact, almost identical to what David says to Goliath. He says, yeah, you come to me with your big fat body and your big sword, and I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And this day, everybody here is going to know that God's real, and all the earth is going to hear this story, and they're going to know God's real. There's the same phrase. In other words, he is praying with the big picture in mind, and that is the glory of God ruling over the situation. And then again, he describes this situation again, verses 14 and 15. They return at the evening, they snar like dogs, they prowl around, they wander about for food, they howl if they're not satisfied. What a what a, what statements describing the enemy. And then lastly, I want you to see this. He believes and he worships. He says three different things. The NIV misses it here. He says three different things. Now watch this. He says, I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love. Hey, he's going to sing of God's strength in the morning. He's got men outside ready to kill him. He's got faith and promise that God's word is true. Now watch this. You are my fortress. Still, again, that idea in a different sense of being set aside and protected. You are my refuge in times of trouble. Now get this. Oh, my strength, I sing praise to you. Oh, God, you are my fortress, my loving God. Now look at He says, verse 16a, I will sing. But he says in verse 16b, it's a different Hebrew word. He actually says this. I will shout. I will cry out in joy. And then look again to verse 17a. "Oh, Oh, my strength, I will sing. Yet a different word. I will sing, verse 16a. I will shout, verse 16b and I will play an instrument, or I will write a psalm. He basically says, I'm going to write this psalm in verse 17a. And you know that song we sing? I'm going to sing, I'm going to shout, I'm going to sing, I'm going to shout. Praise the Lord, you remember that one? Or how about the Pacer song? You make me want to shout, you remember that? Okay, you all know that song. Well, listen, can I tell you, this is basically, a, that's a biblical song to sing. I don't know all of the rest of it, but it is. It's the sense of this. Lord, I am worshiping you. I'm singing to you. I'm going to sound a cry of victory. I'm psalming to you or I'm playing an instrument to your glory. I'm worshiping you because you're the God that's going to answer my prayer and deliver me. Now, uh, we certainly also should be people quick and ready and ready to, to, to pray. But can I, can I tell you, friends, one of the, One of the constant, constant things that happened to Charles Spurgeon, Charles used to say to his congregation, Oh, I wish that none of you go to the depths of despair that I have gone through. I hope none of you taste the depths of despair. Let me say something else that the psalmist regularly is discouraged and going through deep, dark valleys. And can I tell you, friends, don't lose faith. Don't lose heart. Don't somehow think, oh, where are, you know, God must not like me. If I were really the good Christian, I would just always go through this wonderful experience, and life would just be so easy. No, friends, listen. One of the reasons is there's downward growth. Remember what the Puritans taught? The, you never hear about it in our churches today. We always hear about it is fruit bearing and fruit inspection and those things. But the Puritans taught downward growth, down where the dirt is, down where you're humbled, down where God makes you realize what you really truly are and that is a person that needs to be delivered and saved by Him, because if Kim Kaufman is given the chance, every single time he'll mess up. And I'll tell you this, if you're given the chance, apart from the Spirit of God, every single time you'll mess up. And that's one of the reasons we need God, the Holy Spirit, presently at work in our life, delivering us and saving us and helping us. Okay, good. I, that, I preached through that a little faster than I wanted, but we've got other things we've got to do here. Sorry about that. And that concludes today's expository word. Please join us again for more classic messages from Kimber Kaufman. Take care.